We have come to the last chapter in 1 Samuel. So this is our last sermon in this series, which started back in September. And it's really been a great series. I just wanted to let you know as you find your way to 1 Samuel chapter 31, if you don't have a Bible, the blue Bible in front of you, page 252. Uh, for the summer, we're going to go through the uh, chapter in Romans, Romans 8. Some people say is the, the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. So we'll be go- making our way through just one chapter. So if you think about that, and write that down and just start reading through it yourself as we go through it this summer. And then in the fall, we'll pick back up with Second uh, Samuel uh, and continue on to the end of uh, this really one book, but got divided in two. Uh, over time. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinabad and Malchi Shua and the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found Saul, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. And his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men, all on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head stripped him of his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body on a wall, the wall of Bashan. And when the inhabitants of Jabeth-Gilead heard that the Philistines had done What they had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabeth and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabeth and fasted seven days. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on these sobering last words from 1 Samuel. The worship service or my phone, but if I did and wanted to take a picture today, I would take this picture, a picture of the cross. Because in some sense, that's what we do. We gather here together to focus on one particular person, that's Jesus. We come to get a better picture of God, and getting a better picture of God gets a, a better picture of who we are. But if I were to take this picture... I could do something that would change the focus and you wouldn't even notice it until I showed you the picture 
I could just take my finger and push the reverse camera button. <laughs> and of course, one little tap of that little camera icon completely changes the story of the picture, does it not? This is what happened to Saul. He started out with the camera focused on the Lord. And just over time, almost undetectably, he, he, he just touched the little reverse icon. And so as he dies, the whole focus is on Saul. And so my question for us today as we look at this last tragic character is it's a warning. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans, he says the the stories of the Old Testament, the accounts the people of the Old Testament are given for instruction for those who live today. And so Saul is like an instruction manual of how not to wreck your own soul. He, he started out with such great hope, such great promise. He, he'd been chosen by God. And you're going to see he starts out in a, in a good footing. He has a hopeful, hopeful beginning. But somewhere along the way, and we'll track it. He, he begins to, to change the focus. And at one point, he definitely clicks the reverse camera button. And for the last half of his life, it all becomes about him. And so my prayer this morning as we think about this last chapter is that we would consider if we were to hold up the camera for our own lives... Who would be in the center of the picture or what would be in the center of the picture? And perhaps some of us like Saul, we, we've started out on a good place sometime when we were 15 or 18 or 25, but somewhere along the way, events, pressures, circumstances, they've caused that camera to start shaking. And maybe even for a few of us, we've hit the reverse camera button and now really the life that started out about Jesus has now really become a life about us. And you see the tragedy of it. You just notice some of the words here in chapter 31. Fell slain, struck down, badly wounded, thrust through with a sword, feared greatly, fell on his own sword, dead, all died with him, fled, stripped, cut off his head, impaled upon a wall. Just all in one chapter. You, you couldn't get a greater warning for you and I to protect our own soul to say, when you reverse focus, this is where it's going to go. This is how it's going to end up for you in life. And so this morning, as we look at this last chapter, I want to do kind of a brief autopsy on Saul's life. I want to trace this path that he was on and how he arrived at a, such a disturbing end. So let's turn back and you turn with me back to Saul, First uh, uh, Samuel chapter 10 and 11. This is a, a hopeful beginning. And you notice here, just in chapter 10, verse 1, then Samuel, this is the, the great prophet who had turned the people around from going to, towards idols, towards the Lord. And Samuel, now he's getting older and he's passing on this mantle to Saul. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? 
and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And then he's going to give them several signs that we notice taking place. But just first of all, this anointing, this is the word that we use for Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Christ is, he's the anointed one. And so Saul is an Old Testament picture. He's supposed to be a king. He's supposed to live in this promised land. He's supposed to be the one that if any snake tries to come into the garden, he's the one, he's the leader who, who cuts off the head of any evil. And so he's going to reign over the people. He's going to save them from their enemies. And then there's three signs. You're going to, Paul, Saul, just to make sure you know this is true, Samuel says, you're going to meet two men who are going to give you some information. You're going to meet three men who are going to give you some food. And then in verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you in a very dramatic way. In this interesting phrase, the Spirit of the Lord is going to turn you into another man. And all these three things happened for Saul. But just before Saul departs from Samuel, he says, and then there's going to be a day, Saul, that there's going to be a test. These, little, these three little confirmations, they're going to come back to back. You can ha- you're, they're all going to happen as you walk back home. But in later years, there's going to be a test, and you're going to arrive at Gilgal, and you're going to have to prepare for war against the Philistines, the, the dreaded enemy of the Israelites. And when you go to Gilgal, you need to wait for seven days and wait for me. And then I'll come in as God's representative. We'll hear from the Lord and we'll know what to do in terms of the battle. So that's in your mind as you go through chapter 10. Then in chapter 11, you notice this first thing that happens. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged this town called Jabesh-Gilead. Now, I don't know if you remember this because this is now some months ago, but Nahash, remember what his name in the Hebrew means? Serpent. So a serpent is coming in to the Israelite camp. They've come into this particular city, Jabesh Gilead, and they say, make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them on this condition, I'll make a treaty with you as long as you gouge out your right eye and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The snakes coming into the people of God and trying to blind them and bring disgrace. This is the echoes of Genesis chapter 3. Then the elders of Jabesh, the people in this town, they get together and they say, give us seven days that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to save us, We will give ourselves up to you, this desperate cry. Can you just give us a week? We know we can't save ourselves, but possibly there's a king in the country who could come rescue us. And who's that king supposed to be? Supposed to be King Saul. He's the one that's been anointed. He's the one who's supposed to protect the people from God's enemies. And Saul hears about this. And he is infuriated. Look at verse 6 with me. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And we heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. And if we had time, we could read through the rest of the chapter. And you would see that Saul actually comes in and saves these people. He saves them from their enemies. 
And so when you read chapter 10 and 11, you, you feel hopeful about Saul. Saul's gotten anointed. He was chosen by God. He, he is the king. And then when he comes into this first place where, where Nahash comes slithering into the people, he actually is full of the spirit of God and he eliminates the enemy. So it's a hopeful beginning. But then you get to chapter 13 and the camera begins to shake. The focus begins to shift. This is the test. Samuel has, or Saul has gone to Gilgal, this test that Samuel said would come one day. It's a pretty significant test. You look in verse 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. This is chapter 13, verse 5. 30,000 chariots. It's pretty impressive. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. And troops like sand on the seashore. So Saul has 600 men. We learn from other places in this that there's only two people who have swords in Saul's army. Saul and Jonathan. So it's two guys with each have a sword and everybody else has a branch. Against 30,000 chariots. 6,000 horsemen and, and troops like sand on the seashore. This is a pretty... Pretty difficult test. You can appreciate the pressure coming on Saul. And here he is. It's seven days. He's waiting. He wakes up on the seventh day. He's praying that Samuel will have come overnight, and he hasn't. And so what will Saul do? Is he going to wait on God's instructions, or is he going to take matters in his own hands? See, see, the real test for Saul at Gilgal wasn't his fight against the Philistines. It was his fight for faith. The real test for Saul, the real test for you and I, isn't our fight against some outside force. It's against a force inside that would call us to ourselves. Here at this pressure pack, I mean, when things are easy, it's easy for me to say, praise God, oh, it's all up to God. But when pressure comes on, when it feels like something has to happen and something has to happen now, and I've got to take control of it, that's the moment. That's the test. Are we going to trust in God's word or are we going to trust in our own feelings? What a test. Sadly, Saul... He fails the test. He takes matters into his own hands. You see this in verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And then he made the offering. Next verse. As soon as he had finished, Samuel comes. Oh, such a killer verse. You know why that's such a killer verse? For me. For most of you, you've done this. I mean, maybe a few of you haven't, but most of us could. Could we not agree? If I had just waited just a little bit longer, if I had just really trusted God instead of saying, somehow I've got to take control of this situation, I've got to do it, and you make hash of it. And if you had just waited just a little bit longer, God would have come. He would have been faithful to his promise And then this is how you notice the real shakiness of the focus. 
Samuel verse 11 says to Saul, what have you done? I mean, the, the instructions, they were, they were hard to execute, but they weren't hard to understand, were they not? Wait seven days. I mean, that's not very hard to understand. Now it's hard to execute. And Samuel just can't believe Saul. You, what have you done? And then this, notice, this is how you can tell Saul's getting shaky. When I saw the people were scattering, when I saw that you didn't come, when I saw the Philistines mustering their army, what's he doing? He's shifting the blame. Who's really to blame here? Saul. Who's the only one he's not blaming? Saul. I mean, look, Samuel. I mean, I, the people, they were getting afraid. You, you're, to, you're at fault. You didn't come. You should have come on day five, day six. We wouldn't have had this problem. Or the Philistines. I've got all these external pressures. And again, I wonder if this twisted rationalization happens to you sometimes. You take matters into your own hands in ways that you shouldn't. And when it gets discovered, instead of saying, I'm guilty... Well, this is a stressful situation. I mean, I know what God's word said, but I mean, he wasn't coming through on my timetable. I mean, if I had actually followed after God's word, it could have been disaster to me. It's just one small compromise. Plus, I had good intentions. I wonder if those are familiar phrases to anybody else here but myself. You come in and you just, they roll through your mind so easily to try to get yourself off the hook. And when that's happening, your camera is beginning to shake. Your focus is beginning to shift. It's a, it's a great warning. Then in chapter 15, we have the final push of the button here for Saul. It really has a, a second chance. And it's almost the exact same situation. Uh, it will Saul obey. Look at uh, verse 1 with me in chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, again, these are just so clear. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. This is just so simple. This is Genesis. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have, an anoint, I, have, I have noted what Amalek had did to the, to, has done to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek to, and, all, and devote everything to destruction. Don't spare anything. I don't want anything left of Amalek and his tribe. These people are an evil terrorist group, and they've been terrorizing God's people for hundreds of years. And I've tried to be gracious to them, but they can't seem to turn away. So Saul, I need you to destroy this, and I don't want you to take anything away from your battle. The Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people. You might want to circle that little word, his. His people. See what he's saying? Saul, you're an ambassador. You're not the boss. You're an ambassador. 
You get, you get information from, from the king, and then you just repeat it back. You're not the boss. It's his people you're over. It's not your people you're over. And so I want you to go to war, and I don't want you to bring anything back. And then we look at Samuel's or Saul's response. He does go to battle, verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag, who's the king, and the best of the sheep and the cattle. I mean, who, who would want to put to death sheep and cattle and calves and lambs? In fact, we spared everything that was good. These, these things they were unwilling to destroy. But everything that was despised, weak, they did destroy. So Saul's desires outweigh God's word. And then this, is, this to me is the most tragic verse here about Saul. Chapter 15, verse 12. Saul has gone to Carmel and there he has set up a monument to his own honor. You, hear, you see that? Saul in chapter 15, he takes out the camera and he pushes the reverse button. He's setting up a monument to himself about how wonderful he is. He has such good hope. He gets anointed. The spirit of the Lord rushes on him. He actually defeats Nahash, this serpent. And it seems like things are going well, but then he gets shaky. He starts to get shaky because situations come upon him, pressures come upon him, and and he begins to lose focus. And then when it doubles up in chapter 15, he just can't take this focus off of himself. I want to stop and make one point really clear here because it seems to me I, I run into this kind of conversation with some frequency. In chapter 15, Saul didn't become an atheist. Right? He didn't say, I just don't believe that there's a God. I'm going to just do it my own way. No, he believed that there was a God. He actually did some of the things that God wanted him to do. He just decided the things that he did and didn't want to do. And I come across this, this idea pretty frequently. Well, I mean, I believe in God. But there's just some things I don't feel like doing. Or they don't seem right to me. So I do these things, like I come to church on Sundays, but these things, yeah, I'm not, I don't do that. I don't support that. I decide this because I want this. I would say if you're in that place, you're in a very dangerous place. You're very close to clicking the reverse camera button. You're very close to making it all about yourself. And you have a way out. Or not, I'm not saying you. I'm saying other people I've talked to. Other people I've talked to, they give themselves a way out to say, but, but, but I'm doing these. You see what, you hear that? Do you hear that sometimes? They take a half, the half that seems okay or good for them or works for them. But this other portion, they go, yeah, I'm not for that. I don't want to do that. That's, that's hard for me. I don't prefer that. I would want all of those people to hear verse 23. You have rejected the word of the Lord and therefore he has rejected you. I really can't imagine hearing that from Samuel. Paul, 
You're, you're the leader. You do have some good things to show for yourself. You have done some of these things. But because you have decided on this part, you don't want to do these things, the Lord Almighty has rejected you. Chapter 16, verse 14. Let's just read this and let it hang Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now that has to raise a hundred questions in your mind, does it not? None of which I'm going to answer right now. (laughs) I just wanted to sit like a weight. This, This chapter... If you were making it into a a television episode, it would come with a warning. You know, disturbing imagery, mature audience only. Because the difficulty of this chapter of what's happening in Saul's soul and also with the Lord. And so the last half of Saul's life, he lives a disconnected life. And we never see him reverse camera even on his dying day. He's afraid of what the Philistines might do to him, not afraid what the Lord might do to him. So he falls on his sword. That brings us to chapter 31. When you read chapter 31, at least when I read chapter 31, I want to go, okay, what's 2 Samuel about? I mean, I know it's about David and he does a lot of great things. Let's just move on. I just want to read these few verses and then just move quickly. And I think that Samuel would want us to stop and kind of treat it like a car wreck on a highway. You notice how, what happens? Everybody slows down. I mean, even if the lanes are wide open, you see this and you just got to slow down and, and say, wow, look at that wreck. And that's what I think the writer wants us to do is to slow down and look at chapter 31 as this wreck and say, I hope that's not me one day. When you get to, when you read through chapter 31, some commentators say this is the tragedy of Saul's life. And of course it is. But some commentators would say, no, the real tragedy is that Saul lost all his sons. Because see, Saul, you could kind of say, well, I mean, he's been drifting, he's reversed course, and this is sort of the natural outcome for it. But what about his sons? What about Jonathan, my favorite character? The, the one who, who took off his garment, remember, and he gave it to David, and he said, hey, I know I could be the king, should be the king, but I know you're the king. And one day you're going to be king, David. When David's knees were buckling, Jonathan comes up next to him and says, I know you're going to be king. And when you're the king, I'm going to stand right next to you and I'm going to be your best servant. And when you read that, you can't wait for that moment. And then you get to 31 and you realize that moment's not going to happen. So Jonathan and his, and his two brothers, they're impaled upon a wall. That's how it ends up for them. your father here man your actions are so powerful 
your inaction is so powerful. What you do has an immediate reverberation and effect on your family. And thankfully, if, if you just don't have a good father figure, we have a gracious God who can be a father for you. But dads, you're making an impression and you have such a, a great opportunity to just infuse your family with spiritual life rather than what Saul has done. Let Saul's train wreck be a, an instruction manual for you of what not to do. Second point I want to just point out here in chapter 31, really just a, a little piece that I found interesting. If there's any kind of, if there's any ray of kindness here, it's in verse 12. And you, you probably wouldn't have noticed it. I wouldn't have if I hadn't studied it. Verse 11, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what had happened, some valiant men go and get Saul. Jabesh Gilead, where have I heard that before? Remember, they were the ones that Nahash came to and said, hey, gouge out your right eye. And Saul came and saved Nabash Gilead. And here, 20 years later, somehow these men, they have a soft spot for Saul. I mean, he saved them one day. So as bad as Saul has been, he's not gonna, they're not going to give up on Saul even in this tragic moment. Finally, thing to note here is that Saul gets his head cut off. Head's coming off in 1 Samuel's reoccurring event, if you've noticed. Remember when the Ark of the Covenant went into uh, the temple, the Philistine temple, and this uh, stone idol called Dagon, half fish, lower half, half fish, upper half, a, man, a body of a man. And they put the Ark of the Covenant down near Dagon, and then they go away, they come back the next day, and what happens? This big stone statue has fallen over, and guess what? His head is detached. It's a way of God saying, I'm going to cut the head off of evil. And guess what? I don't need any outside help. When David comes to the Goliath, he kills Goliath with a stone. What does he do? Takes the sword of Goliath and chops off his head. To say, this kind of evil is not going to be a part of God's people. And now here, very tragically, Saul is beheaded. Some of you already asked this question because you've asked it to me. But when you get to the end of 1 Samuel, you ask yourself, was Saul saved? When I get to heaven, will I see Saul? What would you say? 10 or 15 good years. Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul. He's, he's infused and energized to defeat the enemy. But then, he, then somewhere along he clicks that button. And for his last 15 years, it's all about Saul. When you read, and you should just go home and Google, is Saul saved? You get tons of answers. <laughs> I'm not going to give you mine. Some people, because you don't know. I mean, we don't know. Some people say, yes, he is, because, you know, once God has done something, he can't undo it. I mean, theologically, you understand that. 
Secondly, well, he just had a mantle of something. It really didn't become something of his heart. So no, he wasn't saved. And plus he's trying to kill David, God's chosen one. Most, most people say we don't know. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord looks on the heart, not, not human beings. Personally, I think it's healthy just to live in the tension. I think that's the pl- place the writer meant you to live in. It's just to live in the tension so as you slowly crawl by this train wreck and this shipwreck of a soul, you would say, oh, I hope that's not me. I mean, I could be on fire for the Lord because it appeared as if Saul was on fire for the Lord. But it could be over time somehow your hand gets shaky, your focus shifts, and you finally hit that button. And then somebody in your family asked me to do your funeral, and they say, well, I mean, he had a good start. What do I say? Do you see any early signs of losing focus? When somebody calls you on something, is your first response to blame other people? Do you follow God, but then there are these things over here that you just say, yeah, I'm not for that. You're in danger. Those are spiritual signs of danger. And if you're in that tension, I would invite you to refocus on Jesus. Here's what's so great about Jesus is he says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, they're weary and heavy laden because they've shifted their focus on themselves and you can't carry your own weight of desires. He says, come to me because I am gentle and humble of heart. You could have been against me for the last 15 years, and when you come to me, you're going to find somebody very gentle, not condemning, not ruthless, not, well, let's shape up and get the, here are the rules now. No, that's not what you get when you come to Jesus. This is the good news about Jesus. You come and you get gentle, humble Jesus. Why? Because you and I get down so low, it feels like God can't get low enough to get us. And he can. And in me, he says, you will find rest. What does he say? Rest for your soul. Let's pray. This is our prayer, Lord. Every soul, every heart, as if we were coming up today for prayer. I'm, I'm praying now, holding every hand here, saying to every person, come to Jesus. Stop, tr- stop trying to make it about yourself. Stop trying to hit the selfie button. Stop trying to manipulate all things. Stop trying to take control. Come to Jesus.
because he is gentle, he's humble, he, he can and has gotten down to the lowest level. His arm is not too short to save. His ear is not too dull to hear the weakest, most pitiful cry from the deepest depths. Come and find rest for your soul in Jesus.